Hello, everybody. Have you ever wondered why people have different skin colors? You're about to get the answer. Nina Jablonski is a biological anthropologist who became curious about this topic and made it a major part of her life's work. She has written books on the subject for adults and children. She is a distinguished professor at Penn State and a visiting fellow at a university in South Africa. I was eager to talk with her to see how what she knows about skin color can help explain how racism has evolved. Here's Nina. Hello, everybody. I am totally delighted to bring to you Dr. Nina Jablonski, who's an expert in skin color, how it evolved, why we are different. Her pedigree is phenomenal. I'm not going to give you all of that. We're going to go straight into the, <laughs> into the conversation. And so welcome, Nina. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Jean. It's a pleasure to be with you. Okay, so in the intro, I said your expertise is skin color. That's interesting. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's one of these things that just happened in my career. The story is a long one, but I never really intended to study skin color, but circumstances came together a little bit more than 30 years ago that made it natural for me to do so. And I realized at that time that there was so little good information available on the evolution of human skin color that it was really essential that someone sort of pick up this work and run with it. And I also felt that it was the time in human history when people could begin to grasp this in an objective way without worrying inordinately about, about Nazi medicine or deterministic scenarios of evolution People wanted to know, why do we look different? Why is our skin color different from one person to another? And so I embarked upon this journey quite accidentally, but it has been an excellent and worthwhile one. Well, that's marvelous. So what was, let, let's go back. Why would you be even interested in this? Well, I am a biological anthropologist, and I'm interested in all aspects of human evolution, and especially how humans and their close relatives have evolved relative to the environment. And skin, human naked skin, is our primary interface with the environment. And one of the ways in which we protect ourselves from the physical aspect of our environment is through skin color, because the primary pigment in skin, melanin, or the long form eumelanin, is a superior natural sunscreen. So all of our ancestors had this beautiful natural eumelanin sunscreen, which is dark to the human eye. So you're talking about Africa. 
Well, I'm talking about Africa originally, but what's so interesting is that all people living in equatorial environments, whether they're in Africa or in Southeast Asia or wherever, have darkly pigmented skin. Okay, so, so before I'm, I'm going to whip out this map in a minute, but before I do that, I want to go more into you. And and okay, thirty years ago, we were in the midst of some racial upheaval. Yes, we were, and uh, well, it's important to recognize that we tend to go from one period of racial upheaval to another. Uh, and sadly, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, of action taken in many countries. We have temporary upheavals and great upsets, and then there seems to be sort of a regression back to, to everything being on the back burner. But what I realized was that it was essential for people to know the biological basis for why our skin color is different, because this was one of the inherent fallacies that literally colored people's ideas about who is better or who is not better in terms of, of humanity. And skin color was responsible for the ordering of people into races and into racial hierarchies 250 years ago. So I realized studying skin color was important in evolutionary biology, but it was really important to educate people about how this trait had evolved and how the evolutionary story was so different from the social story that had developed over the last 200 or so years. Okay. Because skin color itself has no value in terms of, of who you are, but it has meaning in terms of your biology. So tell me about your growing up. I, I want to I want to understand why you would even care. <laughs> well, to be honest, you know did you grow up in a multicultural organization? I, it's funny because I grew up in probably one of the least diverse parts of the United States that you could imagine. I grew up in rural upstate New York, and the only exposure that I that I had to to people who you know sort of looked different from me was when my parents would occasionally bring me into the city of Buffalo, New York, which was the closest metropolitan city uh, to where I lived. And I would see people who looked different. But in my hometown, people were much of a muchness and looked, you know, much the same. It wasn't until many years later that I became much more aware of human physical diversity, human cultural diversity. I was an exchange student. I began to travel. I went to college and then graduate school, saw people in different places. But actually, my work on skin color didn't begin until I was an established scholar, really in my in my early to mid thirties. Wow! And this happened as a result, quite honestly, of a of a beautiful accident of of doing a lecture for a 
for a class and realizing that there was so little information available on skin color evolution in humans and that we could do so much better. And so, you know, what it, it basically, it wasn't intentional. I didn't sort of set out with a goal of doing this, but it happened. And I realized that it was the right time. So did that there was answer your question? Did you get tripped up in your thought? I mean, what? No. Actually happened, Jean, was that one of my colleagues asked me to give a lecture for him because he was going off to a conference. And so I offered to give this lecture on human skin to a large class of introductory human biology students. And I did that. And as part of it, I wanted to talk to them about the evolution of skin color, because everybody, of course, had to be interested in skin color. And when I started researching for this lecture, I realized that there was an incredible dearth of information. There was nothing that was really very good. And what I also could see was that people, scientists, were tiptoeing around this area because it was considered simply the third rail. You don't want to touch something that is potentially so socially sensitive. But when I started working on this in the, in the early 1990s, I realized that, okay, I think we as humans today can handle this kind of inquiry. And certainly we have some new scientific information that we can bring to bear. So that's why I launched into the breach, because I felt that it was just too important a topic from the perspective of human evolution, human medicine and health, and certainly human social relations, that we couldn't afford to just sort of let it languish and let people think that it had, that it had evolved uh, in, in some random way, that there wasn't really an evolutionary pattern to it, because in fact, there is. Okay, so there are two things. One is you discovered myths about skin color. Just concretely, even though it's ugly to say and to hear mm. out loud, concretely, what were the myths? We have to give people a contrast with what the myth was and what you found out. Yeah. I mean, what we see, and this is in, in cultures all over the world, not just in the United States, is that there are a variety of myths about, you know, about people rolling in the mud uh, early in their history. Uh, You're in, kidding me. No, in, in, in I never heard in, that one. In, in some East African groups, I was talking to one of my friends years ago, and she said, yes, you know, we have this idea, you know, in our folklore that people rolled in the mud, and that's how they got dark. Uh, but, you know, in, in the Americas, we have the common biblical derived or pseudo biblically derived uh, fallacy that that humans have their conspicuous color because they are descendants of the son, sons of Noah. And the so-called curse of Ham I applies. Grew up with that myth. 
Yes, you know, applies to to people, especially from Africa, who have dark skin, who were cast out uh, by Noah because they discovered, because Ham discovered Noah uh, without any clothing on. And the other sons did not have this curse. They had lighter skin and went on to, you know, sort of, uh, look better uh, in the in this pseudo biblical version, but it's important to to emphasize that this is a pseudo theological construct, even though it has traveled far as a piece of folklore and and belief. It is actually not in the Bible per se. the The story of Noah and and, and the fate of his sons is far more oblique as it's presented in the Bible. But I think this highlights, Gene, the fact that people want an explanation. They want to understand how this came to be. And so that's one of the reasons that I saw this as so important. If people are carrying around these folklore ideas, regardless of where they live in the world, and if we can do better through science, then we should do it. Yes, I, I agree with it. Now, I'm, I'm surprised that you said it was oblique because I've read that passage many times and it seems straight to me, but I was raised, I remember even reading in the local paper in Memphis, the story of Ham and how we were all cursed. So, yes. so I, I saw it as real. Yeah. And and that, of course, is the power of this story, is that when people see it as real and they internalize it, and this, this scenario that was developed helped to put people in order also. This it was it was more sinister than it may first appear, because certainly the sons of Noah don't come out as equals here. And, and when Noah casts out Ham, um, he clearly, you know, isn't on the A-list. And so this makes it easier for people, dark African people, to be considered inferior to people with other colors. The, the the curse of yeah the curse of ham actually has has traveled far uh, and has changed a lot uh, over the years and has been interpreted a lot. Oh well, that's interesting. Now, my I have to clarify. I thought it was real in that in the Bible this was the way it was written, but in my family we were not raised to take the Bible literally. Yeah. So, so I thought. It's written in the Bible. Those who believe in the literalness of the Bible are going to believe that. Yes. And yes. But what the point you're making, which is extremely important, is that this story served as justification. Yes. It was one of the one of the justifications for reinforcing the 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 nascent racial hierarchies that were developed and formalized in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And what's so interesting, Jean, is that we see at that time 
several different sort of historical trends occurring. You see a pseudoscientific justification for the 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 arrangement of people into races according to color. And you see all sorts of manufactured scientific explanations for inferiority and superiority. And then you have this biblical so-called justification for the races and racial hierarchies. Now, what is well known, but needs to be even better known, is that these all supported the transatlantic slave trade, which at the time in the early 1800s was beginning to come under fire from abolitionist forces in the United States, uh, in the, the, the young United States, and in, and in parts of Europe, especially in Britain. So, you know, this was this was a nasty thing. It doesn't, you know, on the face of it, the curse of Ham, a biblical story, doesn't sound particularly nefarious or sinister. But in fact, the way it was marshaled, along with scientific racism, to reinforce the transatlantic slave trade by basically saying, you know, it's okay, according to this system of beliefs, for us to treat people, to treat some people as less good or less human than others. Some people can be enslaved. They were meant to be enslaved according to what the Bible says and according to what we see as scientific evidence in inverted commas. So this, this was a a very unfortunate time in in Western history. Yes, and so, and so skin color was used to justify slavery. So let's bring in the Native Americans as part of this. Oh, yes. Let me. How how would you introduce them? Yes, because the Native Americans were considered a separate race, and they were not white like uh, Western Europeans were. And so they, by definition, would also not be as sort of highly ranked in the racial hierarchy as, as white Europeans. So they were also demeaned and they equally could be enslaved and disposed of. They were considered, uh, frankly, subhuman. And so, again, this was a, a, an extremely, you know, inhuman way of seeing human beings, but that's the way it was. We often have a hard time grasping just how evil uh, this period of time was and how this systematic derogation of people, the systematic demeaning of people and considering them to be inhuman because of their appearance or their morality or whatever was assumed to be linked with skin color, this was really this was a bad time for the human race. Yes. I was a grown person before I understood why the difference in skin color even occurred. I literally yeah. went to 
a they called it a deprogramming workshop for those of us who had been raised under segregation. And they took no. apart all of our physical characteristics and explained why they existed. So yeah. I'm grown and I said, oh, so this is what happened. So when I discovered your work, Nina, I flashed back to the workshop and I said, oh my God, I wonder how many people do not understand this history or understand why, how it even evolved. Yeah, and that's, Jean, why I do what I do. Because I want not only you as an adult to learn about this, but I want little kids. I want kids in school. I want, you know, I want everyone to learn about this because humans are visual, right? We we pay a lot of attention to visual signals. And skin color is part of that visual signaling. You know, we recognize this, we just like we recognize leaves are green. Uh, and so we have to understand why this exists. And when we understand that it has a simple basis in evolutionary biology, it's not some biblical curse, it's not some some arbitrary folklorish, uh, you know, occurrence. Rolling in the be, mud. Yeah, it can be understood easily. We understand the genetics. We understand the timing of it. It's a beautiful and fascinating story. And it oh. pertains to so many aspects of our health and livelihoods beyond its social signaling purposes. Okay, so I'm going to whip out a map. So the question I'm going to ask you is, using this map, explain why we have different skin colors. Okay. I will be happy to. Okay, here we go. There oh. we go. These are two beautiful maps, Jean, if I do say so myself. That's gorgeous. From <laughs> from some of our youth curriculum work. And the bottom map is the one that's really important to look at because it shows the intensity of ultraviolet radiation from the sun on the Earth's surface. And what it shows is just how hot or how high the ultraviolet radiation is closer to the equator those those red and pink areas that are that are close to the equator are very high uv in you know year in and year out it just is a minute i just want to clarify what a, the equator is the equator is the widest part yes that's right thank you yes and so that that area of the world receives really strong sunlight year in and year out. And our ancestors who evolved, all of them in Africa, were subjected to very strong sunlight with a lot of UV day in and day out. And under those conditions, when we lost most of our body hair, in the evolution of the human lineage about 2 million years ago, what happened to our naked skin was that we evolved the ability to make this beautiful natural sunscreen called eumelanin or simply melanin in our skin. Melanin is 
a standard pigment in biology. We see it in many, many, many different different kinds of animals. And it's a really, really important pigment that imparts color and it protects all sorts of animals, including our primate relatives from strong sunlight because of its properties, its ability to absorb harmful UV rays. So when humans lost most of their conspicuous body hair, we gained the ability to make uh, this, this natural sunscreen in our skin. And we were born with this ability. That was so important. So humans, including the ancestors of our modern homo sapiens evolving in Africa, all had dark pigmentation. This is super important for us to recognize. This is our, our ancestral uh, legacy, and it's, it's important, it's rich, it's ancient, and humans, modern humans, throughout most of our history have lived in Africa and have had dark skin. So hang so, on. So that is what I'm going to say. It's going to sound really <laughs> stupid, uh, but I'm going to say it anyway. I knew that Africa was the seat of of homo, homo sapiens. I knew yes. that, but it never occurred to me that they had dark skin. Yes, they had dark skin. And we know from the fossil evidence and genetic evidence that modern people, homo sapiens, evolved about 300,000 years ago from existing ancestors in Africa. And Homo sapiens has spent most of the last 300,000 years evolving in Africa. We don't see Homo sapiens gene outside of Africa until about 80,000 years ago or so. Now, this oh. is important because yeah. it means that all of the all of the things that we call modern about people, making complex tools, having language, making complex forms of art and body decoration, all of these things occurred while we were evolving in Africa. We really became the modern people that we are during our, our period of evolution in Africa. But at that point, a few small populations of humans start moving out of Africa, not because there's any particular goal in mind to leave, except that people were hunting for, for animals. And they found them in different places. They followed the animals. And that naturally took them into the Arabian Peninsula and some populations thence into the southern part of Asia. And then quite a bit later, into the central part of Eurasia. So it's important here to think about there are only a few people relative to the, to the whole mass of, of human population as it existed then. Only a few groups of people were leaving to pursue food elsewhere, and they didn't have any particular goal in mind. They didn't say, you know, Norway or bust or something. <laughs> it, was, 
They just, they, they didn't know where they were going, except they were chasing after food. So the key thing from the perspective of skin color is that as people dispersed outside of these equatorial environments with strong sun, they were going into environments with much less strong, much weaker sun and weaker UV. And that had a real impact on their biology. This beautiful eumelanin pigment that we all had uh, protects us against strong ultraviolet radiation. And when we're facing strong ultraviolet radiation, it still allows enough UV to enter our bodies to help make vitamin D in the skin. Vitamin D is really important to us and we make it in our skin through ultraviolet radiation and the chemical changes it makes in our skin. We can make vitamin D in our skin even if we have dark skin, right? But if we move to an area where the UV is much weaker, then the the way it works is that all of the eumelanin, all of that beautiful natural sunscreen absorbs all of the ultraviolet radiation and there isn't any left to make vitamin D. This was the reason why some populations as they moved into higher latitudes actually evolved lighter skin skin that could more readily produce vitamin D in it. So there was actual natural selection for genes that would impart lighter color to the skin. In other words, people lost their sunscreen under the influence of evolution so that they could continue making healthy amounts of vitamin D in their skin under weaker solar conditions. And dark, uh, dark skin is, can allow uh, vitamin D to be made as long as you are under strong sunlight. So people living in natural conditions under equatorial sunlight have no problems making ample amounts of vitamin D. But if you have very dark skin, and you are in areas of the world that have much less ultraviolet radiation or much more seasonal ultraviolet radiation, then you have a real problem because you need a little bit to make vitamin D. And if you're not getting a little bit, then you will have vitamin D deficiency and a whole lot of serious health problems. So that's where evolution by natural selection really came in. Okay, so let me let me summarize and take this map this map down. On the bottom, the red is high intense sun, which means high level of UV, ultraviolet. Yes. And then the top map shows that those folks who are getting all of that sun going straight across the Ecuador as you said those folks are darker skinned because yes. they're under the intense sun. But yes. 
The danger of that is unless they're out in the sun, they have less vitamin D, less ability for to make the vitamin D. Perfect. Okay. So Perfect. Then, so as we move, I'm on the bottom map again, as we move up and the vitamin D gets cooler, because you can see at the blue at the top is cooler, then on the top map, people get lighter because yes. they need the skin to absorb more vitamin D. I mean, ultra UV. They're not yes. seeing enough. And so, yes. so they have to lighten up to get the UV. That's right. And, and so, you know, we, we now understand all of the sort of the evolutionary and genetic foundations of this. And the last 20 years has been really remarkable. And I haven't done a lot of this work. I've put it together and I've talked to a lot of my colleagues in other fields who have helped me put it together from genetics and epidemiological data. Uh, But we now have a really good understanding of this. And this sheds a huge amount of light on our health problems today, because we know that vitamin D deficiency is a big problem, especially for people with darkly pigmented skin, but also it's a big problem for people who don't go outside at all, like me. You know, I'm inside in my fluorescent lighting. I'm sure you're much the same. You know, many modern people live indoors, are fixed onto screens most of the time. And so we all are at risk of vitamin D deficiency because we're not doing the things that our ancestors did for tens and hundreds of thousands of years. Okay. So the question I'm going to ask you is, how did the lighter skin people come to claim superiority? By a historical accident. Because what happened in the history of, of, the, uh, of the development of knowledge is that people in Europe and in Eastern Asia, but mostly uh, we have come to pay attention to people of, of European derivation, uh, came to be interested in the in the development of civilization and why did people why did people look the way they look why do they act the way they act why have they developed different civilizations so i mean this this process of inquiry into people other than our own is a very ancient inquiry but in western europe it became something of an industry in the middle of the 1700s. And in this period that is often referred to as the Enlightenment, uh, this so-called Enlightenment included uh, many people, philosophers, naturalists, and, and scientists who were interested in understanding and putting into order all of the people in the world. So, I said at the outset that it was a bit of an accident, but it was a historical accident insofar as as people in Western Europe had control of language and the ability to disseminate language 
they also were traveling more to other parts of the world than were, for instance, East Asians or people in the Americas. So the combination of having sort of language being transmitted and people moving around, especially on sailing ships, meant that ideas from Western Europe were traveling far. And these ideas about who is better and who is worse in the world traveled farther than most. So literally because they were more explorers. They, they were, yes, they were more explorers and they were, they were better at, at, tra- at spreading tales about their explorations. And they wrote down accounts of their explorations. We know that in the history of humans, lots of people were traveling around the world on long distance rafts and sailing ships of various kinds. But what made the Europeans different is that they wrote down and circulated the ideas and the accounts of these travels far more widely. They had writing, they had a way of disseminating writing, and this made a big difference. And this is where some of your guns, germs, and steel ideas begin to come in, Gene, because this is where we see the the propagation of ideas and the people behind the ideas beginning now to control the stage of world affairs where they hadn't before. And this becomes sinister when those people claim superiority. Wow. You know, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking we have a parallel in what's going on now. Because right now, the squeaky wheel gets the social media attention. Yes. And and it is a lesson that we have had to learn in a very hard way many times in history. And that seems, sadly, to be repeating itself. But we know better and we can do better and one of the reasons that that I'm so committed to a program of, of education, public education, and especially childhood education, is that we all have the ability to learn information about the foundations of human diversity and how we came into this particular historical mess that we're in, how we came to have a race-oriented world, and how we began to think about people being in some kind of a hierarchy when we know that there is no biological basis for such an arrangement. Okay, so you have this book behind you. I'm going to hold it up. This book, and it's probably showing it backwards, the words backwards, that's okay. It's just skin silly. So this, I, I ordered this book because I have nieces and nephews and grandnieces and nephews. And, mm. I'm, and I'm definitely going to get other copies to send. You're, you're mentioning your commitment to young people understanding it. What's the thesis that you want kids to get? Well, I want kids to understand that their skin 
is really important to them, that it's a really wonderful interface with the world, and that our skin does a lot of work for us. It protects us in various ways. And one of the things that it does is protect us from ultraviolet radiation. And the degree to which our skin protects us depends on how much pigment we have on how much melanin we have in our skin. And so this book follows really the story of skin, how we got to have naked skin, and then what our skin does for us because our skin sweats to help us keep cool. And it has these different skin colors according to where our ancestors evolved, whether our ancestors lived under strong sunlight or under weaker sunlight. And that this amount of pigment has led to our skin having different appearances. And that's why we say it's just skin silly because it's simply a matter of where our ancestors evolved and how much sun they were under. But the, the pigment plays an important role in our health. So it's, it's important to us in many fundamental biological ways. So you're demystifying skin, helping kids understand that whatever social meaning that has been attached to their skin color has nothing to do with the biological reality. Exactly. And what I want to do, ideally, Jean, is I want to get them so young before they have had any of these funny ideas about, about this color means this, this color means that, or whatever. I want to basically prevent them vaccinate them, as it were, yeah. against the a lot of the ignorance of a racialized world, a color-delineated uh, world. Yes, we see color, we appreciate color, but color doesn't have any meaning with respect to our worth as human beings. And that's what I want kids to understand. Okay, so when I did my dissertation, after reading all about lots of stuff, I ended up using the term social race and yeah. not race. Yeah. Because race as a biological fact wasn't accurate. Race was a social, socially constructed. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that and explain this distinction I'm try I was trying to make then and I'm making now? I think it's an excellent distinction to make. Social race really really connotes, really shows that this is something that, that binds humans together. And we know that race is an important identifier. Uh, I mean, the government uses it, but more importantly, a lot of people use it because they feel that social race unifies them according to how they have been treated in the world, whether that's good or bad. So they have shared experiences. And, and so when I talk to people about, about race being a social construct, sometimes that, that phrase sort of makes people sort of glaze over. But your idea of your, your simplified label of social race is much better because that clearly means that this is something that people have have embraced or continue to identify with because this is what they've experienced 
Race is real in terms of people's life experience. And you can't really tell them to sort of throw it away because it has no biological reality. Because for many people, this has framed their whole reality, whether whether good, bad, or indifferent. It means whether they have been privileged or not in many cases. I do a lot of work in South Africa. And in South Africa, even more than in the United States, we have this dramatic physical segregation legacy that was enforced for, for decades, even more strongly than in parts of the United States. And we, we see this, this, you know, this horrible, you know, legacy of race. And it's, you can't stop, nor should you stop people from identifying with this with this historical unity but what i want to emphasize to kids is that ultimately we are all human beings and that these social constructions these social races have a history that we can understand and that our job has to be to understand that history to recognize and to try to press the reset button on ourselves, right? That we do our best to, to undo the, the pernicious effects of these, of these social races, because we have all suffered from the construction of social races. Yes. And I, I, I want, how, how have we all suffered? Because I know many white people who think that they have not suffered is those people who have suffered. Yeah. Everyone suffers because in a racialized and especially in a racist world, people who are obviously being, being subjugated to racism, who are in less favored races, have have the weight of this uh, of this subjugation upon them but then if you're sort of closer to the top of the pile you have the pressure of having to demean people who you would otherwise find as completely normal human beings like yourself people have to work at treating one another badly right yes. or thinking less of others and we know that that you know it, the most egregious racists when they're being honest uh internally with themselves realize that it's that it's hard work to reinvent that anger of racism yes. so that's what i mean when i say that everyone suffers yes and on top of this, and tell me if you agree with that, on top of it, the dehumanization process that goes mm. on means that they have less capacity for empathy, for love, for all of that stuff, because they've learned to shut that down by putting down another person. Yes. And this is unnatural for people. People are naturally compassionate with one another. They help one another. We evolved to be highly social, 
helpful individuals who work with one another and who who basically help one another whenever the opportunity is available. This is how human societies evolved and survived. And so for us to have to mount those kinds of, of sort of horrible walls against one another is a very unnatural act and takes actual emotional and psychological energy. Yes. Okay, so I want to move into uh, another related topic. Mm. So on the one hand, race is really not biological, it's socially constructed, it's social race. But on the other hand, the epigenetics folks are now saying that trauma can be transmitted across generations. Yes. And become part of the gene pool or yes. something like that. So can you ex break that down, explain that? I think, Jean, this is probably one of the most important areas of human biology that will be developed in the next uh 10 to 50 years. The field of epigenetics is really striving to understand how our genes are modified by the environment in which we live. And so in short, what we are seeing evidence of is that people who live under, let's say, the chronic stresses of racism in a segregated neighborhood with poor access to food and people who are stressed out and feeling anxious all the time, they will develop such chronic biological stress that we will see evidence of this in their DNA, in the, in the, uh, in the molecules that regulate the activity of their DNA, and that these traces of regulatory molecules will actually be inherited from one generation to another. In other words, the DNA changes caused by chronic stress will be inherited from one generation to another. Now, this is worrying, and it should be worrying, because it means that for all of previous human history, we have had no real human races, right? They, we have differences in appearance between people and, you know, a little different skin color, a little different hair, whatever. What we are seeing with these epigenetic changes are some of the most pronounced biologically and health relevant changes that are occurring that really are demarcating people who are stressed versus unstressed or exposed to particular nutritional regimes or pollution regimes. In other words, we are creating new subsets of people who are divided according to epigenetics as opposed to sort of baseline human genetics. That gives me the chills just hearing you say that. Mm, it gives me the chills just saying it. <laughs> so. so, you know, I want to I wanna say what's the solution, but it sounds like a silly question. 
How does your work feed? Let me do it this way. How does your work feed towards a solution? This is a long-term project. This is beyond our lifetimes, Jean. This is beyond our children's lifetimes. But if we recognize that we are one humanity and that we have some big, uh, you know, big problems facing us, epigenetics, climate change, other things, if we recognize this and if we can take little steps significantly over many years, if we can have education about the origins of human diversity for little kids, medium-sized kids and adults, if we can have education about how we got into this mess in the first place, clear historical documentation Ultimately, Gene, there is one history of humanity from prehistory up to the present day. If we can speak clearly to people about this, they will understand eventually that we need, that we can work together, that we have worked together in the past, that we can overcome our superficial differences and get on with the process of helping one another and helping the planet save itself. Okay, so if we can learn to understand the genesis of our differences and recognize them as socially and historically planted in us, then we can move forward together because we'll know it's not real, basically. Yes, I, you know, and this is, this is a long-term project. It has taken us hundreds of years to get into this particular mess. And it's not going to be easy to get out, even with all of modern communication and social media. But that doesn't mean we can't start and try very hard. Nina, <laughs> thank you so much for being here and for shedding your wisdom and your insight. And thank you, especially for your dedication for what you're doing. We, I, I was so thrilled to discover you and to know that someone is doing this work to provide some factual basis and factual understanding of why we're different. It is, it's been such a pleasure speaking with Eugene. Thank you for asking such a wonderfully penetrating series of questions, uh, including plumbing the depths of my of my biblical knowledge, which I really <laughs> appreciated, and 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 helping to spread the word because we can all do better. Yes, that's it. It's about that's what it's about. I grew up in an era where the biblical story of Ham was the major explanation for why we had different skin colors. I remember reading the story of Ham in Bible school and thinking that can't be right, that we were cursed for all time because some man saw his father naked. My parents and even my Bible studies teacher said it's just a story, but I still remember feeling disturbed by it. Nina is dedicated to educating children today so they don't have to grow up like I did with false ideas of inferiority and superiority. As a takeaway, I point out that we talk about race in three different ways. 
We talk about race as a social construct, as a basis for social identity, and as it is emerging in the field of epigenetics. So first, race as a social construct. It is not a biological reality. It is a made up construct used to justify slavery. Most of you have heard this. Second, race as a social identity. I was really impressed that Nina understood the cultural significance of identifying with a racial group. She wasn't one of those going around saying that since race is a social construct, we don't have to pay any attention to it. She understood that sharing a common history can form a common bond. So while she is not saying that race is biological, she is allowing for identifying with a racial group. Our third way of talking about race is through the lens of epigenetics. Epigenetics means gene expression, how our genes show up in our bodies. Race through an epigenetic lens triggers alarm bells for me. On the one hand, scientists are agreeing there's no biological basis of race. On the other hand, epigenetics are saying that due to stress in the environment, such as racial discrimination, people's genes can be impacted and these genetic changes can be inherited by their children and grandchildren. In other words, through epigenetics, race is coming to have a biological component. What can we do? Nina ends by saying we should educate ourselves and spread the word. I'm Jean Laddie. Check out our website at www.leadingconsciously.com. We offer two programs, Change Makers and Pathfinders, where you can learn more about race, leadership, and inclusion. And look for our new book coming out in July 2024 on conscious change.